Good morning. How's everybody doing? Good. It's good to be together. I want to welcome those of you that are watching online and out in Loudoun and Arlington, Prince William and our Montgomery County locations. It's good to be together today. We're going to dive back into Philippians chapter 2, which is what we've been studying over the last few weeks. And so if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and make your way there. If you don't have a Bible with you, we'll have the verses up on the screen. But before we do that, uh, a couple quick things. Uh, Number one, if you are online and you're watching the World Cup in the background, could you do us all a favor and don't post any spoiler alerts, all right? That's number one. Number two, I want to let you know that uh, in January, we're going to be doing 21 days of prayer again. This is a time for us as a church family or anybody that wants to participate to devote concentrated, intentional uh, season of prayer uh, for 21 days. And so we've created a website, mcclainbible.org slash 21 days. It's live now. We'll give you more details about it. But this is just a sneak peek. And we want you to begin thinking intentionally about how you can maximize and make a commitment for those 21 days. So go to that website. There's a bunch of resources there to help you prepare uh, for that time. Before we talk about next year, uh, before we turn the corner into next year, uh, I want to encourage you in your giving uh, toward the end of this year. First of all, I want to thank you, uh, those of you that are members of our church or regular attenders from our church, maybe those of you that are watching online and give to our church just to support the ministry. I want to thank you for the ways that uh, out of your generosity, uh, you support the ministry uh, to the people in this church, but also through the people in this church uh, to our community and around the world. And I want to encourage you toward the end of the year as we've been doing to really pray and consider how God might want you to give even above and beyond uh, your normal giving. Uh, And I want to give you an example of what uh, our generosity and church family goes to. Uh, Many of you know that we prioritize ministry to the next generation. And so we have our Kids Quest ministry to students, our Rock uh, student ministry to middle school and high school students. And so I want to highlight this morning how God has been working in the lives of so many teenagers across all of our locations here in McLean Bible Church. So check out this video. I didn't grow up in a Christian household. My family celebrated the traditional holidays but didn't have a relationship with God. I was so consumed by my own pride and dark thoughts that resulted in a bad relationship with my mother and an addiction to social media. The only thing that kept me going during difficult times was saying to myself that things would get better without knowing who to rely on or when things would get better. Being born into a Christian household, my parents raised me to act like Jesus would in every situation. Even though I grew up in a Christian family, which I am very grateful for, I never really had a personal relationship with God. As I kept getting older, I started to understand more about the gospel and what it meant to be a Christian. But I never felt like I was really connected with God until the sixth grade. When I joined The Rock, a new perspective of life and the gospel was shown to me. It was not until I attended a summer camp in 2019 where I learned that eternal life could only come from putting all my trust in Christ in love. Through my stepfather coming to my life and the Brock Youth Group, I learned about Jesus' goodness and selflessness. God created a perfect world, but because of sin, we are separated from Him. I came to know Jesus personally at a recent NBC Rock summer camp, where I realized that I needed an enduring and personal relationship with Him as the only cure for my sinful nature. Because God is so loving, He sent His Son Jesus to live a life with us. 
died on a cross for our sins, then Jesus rose from the grave conquering sin. I'm grateful that Jesus died for all my sins so I can have a personal relationship with my Heavenly Father. God has done so much in my life to bring me closer to Him and I praise Him because of that. I was filled with God's Holy Spirit, love, wisdom, and light that destroyed my dark thoughts and took down my pride, ultimately fixing the relationship with my mother and helping me become more selfless. After attending North Bay, I decided that I wanted to get baptized. I want to get baptized because I would like everyone to know that I'm a follower of Christ. Jesus wants me to make disciples, and I can do that now by reacting and responding with love and being a good example. Through Jesus, I hope to spread His hope, light, and love to others so they can experience the best kind of life with our Creator. Today, I confess in the church and to all the world that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. Today, I confess in the church and to all the world that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. Today, I confess, confess in the church and to all the world that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. So now I confess to God in the church that I am ready to follow Jesus through whatever he has planned for me. I'm praying for that day in the life of my kids. And when you look at the headlines that talk about religion in America, it just says over and over again how emerging generations are walking away from Christianity, walking away from faith. And there may be some truth in that, but I'll tell you what I see. I actually see a generation that's primed for a spiritual awakening. And here's the thing, here's the thing. There's a lot of other causes to give to at this time of year, good causes. But there is no other group of people other than followers of Jesus that will fund the spread of the gospel to the next generation. And so I want to invite those of you who are a part of our church or just want to support the ministry of our church to really prayerfully consider how God might be calling you, inviting you to give above and beyond toward the end of this year in our church family to support ministries like our ministry to teenagers here in the D.C. metro area. Uh, We are able to do a lot of different things, not just the rock that we have on Wednesdays and Sundays, but stuff like rock camp. In fact, uh, registration for winter camp is up live now. Parents, uh, you can go to mcclainbible.org slash winter camp, and we run those camps at a financial loss uh, so that nobody has to miss camp because of of the cost. And so our generosity together enables us to do uh, that kind of ministry. And so I want to pray for uh, the Rock Student Ministry. I want to pray for just the ministry of our church in general and pray for our time in the Word together. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for uh, just your abundant mercy and your grace and just your generosity toward us. Thank you for the opportunity that we have, especially at a time like this, Lord, a season of giving where we have the opportunity, Lord, to reflect that generosity to others. And Father, I pray, Lord, that you would use our generosity as a church family, not just for our own good, but for your glory and the good of others. And Father, as we turn now to your word, Lord, we pray that you would not only speak to our hearts, but work in our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, quick question for you. Uh, Have you ever wondered why sin requires death? 
and why of all ways to die, Jesus had to be crucified. That's what we're going to look at as we study our passage today. Over the past few weeks, we've been studying Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, as a way of focusing our hearts on Jesus during this Advent season. And today we're going to focus on verse 8, but I want to read verse 5 through 8, and uh, we'll pick up next week in, in, in verse uh, uh, 9, 10, and 11. Uh, I want to read verses 5 through 8 so that you can catch the flow of the passage. This is the Apostle Paul writing Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Now, this is one of the most baffling and profound and majestic descriptions of Jesus in the entire Bible. You think about this as like this picture of the downward mobility of Jesus in his incarnation. And what we've been doing is over these last four, or over these four weeks together, We've been taking kind of one screenshot at a time to try to capture the wonder of who Christ is and why he came. And we've talked about the fact that Jesus is fully God. He's the second person of the Trinity, equal with God the Father, equal with God the Holy Spirit. And yet he didn't see his divine status as something to be used to his own advantage. And so he emptied himself. And when it says he emptied himself, it doesn't mean that he got rid of his divine nature. He didn't subtract his divine nature. What this means is that for the first time in eternal history, he added, he took on our human nature and entered our world through the womb of a woman. He willingly limited his divine privileges in order to become like us and to serve among us. And so in verse 6, we see that Jesus is fully God. In verse 7, as we studied last week, we see that Jesus took on human flesh. He was fully man and he became our servant. And what we'll see today in verse 8 is that he did all of that so that he could be our Savior. So let's unpack verse 8 phrase by phrase. It says, and being found, or some translations say, "And, and appearing in human form, Jesus humbled himself. Now, Paul's point here is that Jesus was fully God and fully human, and yet when he came to earth, people only saw the human part. They didn't recognize or properly esteem him as God in human flesh, which is why the Jewish leaders saw him and his teaching as blasphemous. Here's a man born in Bethlehem who grew up right up the street in Nazareth, and now he's claiming to be equal with God. They didn't recognize him. Makes me think of this viral video that came out a couple years ago of Drake. Drake is a rapper. He's one of literally one of the most recognizable people on the face of the planet. He's just one of the biggest celebrities in the world. And there's this video of Drake showing up to a party, and this guy at the party walks up to him and says, Who invited you? And Drake looks at him with this confused, kind of arrogant face, and he says, myself. Do you know who I am? 
And it just makes me think that Jesus had to feel like that sometimes in his life, like he wasn't recognized. I remember being out at our Montgomery County location uh, and uh, one of our violin players, this guy named Andrew, like all this time, I just, he was a violin player. I didn't know he was like this world-renowned economist. Like to me, he was just a dude that was on stage going like this. You know what I'm saying? Well, how, whatever violinists do, you know what I'm saying? Didn't recognize like who he really was, what his credentials were. And people didn't, even the disciples didn't initially understand who Jesus really was. And this is what the Apostle Paul means when it says Jesus humbled himself. He humbled himself. They thought he was just a profound rabbi, and Jesus was willing to live beneath what he deserved, beneath his means, in order to serve others. And he voluntarily chose not just to come to earth as a human being, but to live on earth within the limitations and the challenges of being human. He humbled himself, first of all, by taking on human flesh, by allowing himself to be limited by that which he created. The infinite God willingly experienced weakness, hunger, thirst, and exhaustion. He humbled himself by being born as a needy baby instead of appearing as a man and living in poverty among an oppressed people. He humbled himself by obeying his parents and submitting to Jewish laws and traditions, listen, that were ultimately designed to point to him. Jesus humbled himself by learning carpentry like his father. And think about it. Jesus didn't need to build anything. He didn't need to build anything. He doesn't need to get his hands dirty with raw, earthy materials. He was with God the Father at the beginning of creation when he spoke the world into existence. The creator of all things, though, now is learning a trade. He humbled himself by submitting to the Holy Spirit and allowing John to baptize him. And he humbled himself by enduring the accusations and the bullying and the mockery of the religious leaders in Jerusalem. I could go on and on, but Jesus' entire life on earth was marked by the deepest, most profound humility. And not just in his life, but ultimately in his death. And so let's keep going in verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. Let's pause there for a minute. Jesus lived his entire earthly life in perfect obedience to the Father's will. Not out of obligation, but out of this mutual eternal love that he and the Father shared with each other. And this is how we were designed to live. In perfect harmony with God, enjoying his presence and living under his loving authority together as a human family. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. Every single one of us, we've chosen our will over God's will. We've chosen disobedience instead of obedience. And even when we're trying to do good, we still stumble and relapse and fall short of God's standards. And so Jesus came to do for us what we have not been able to do for ourselves. He was able to offer the Father his perfect obedience, which qualified him to be our perfect sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And that's exactly why he came. 
That's the ultimate meaning of Christmas. Jesus came to live a sinless life and then die a sacrificial death. And so let's keep going in verse 8. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by, being, by becoming obedient to the point of death. He was obedient to the point of death. And we looked at this already when we first studied this passage, but you're getting a picture of this relationship in the Trinity that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all play a role in the plan of salvation. You see this most clearly in Ephesians chapter 1. We won't turn to it, but the Father planned it, the Son accomplished it, and the Spirit activates our salvation as we trust in Jesus. And so when it says that Jesus became obedient to the point of death, it's saying that Jesus played his role in our salvation by voluntarily giving his life as a sacrifice for our sins. And here's the thing, he wasn't forced to do this. Contrary to what some people have written and and what some people try to say about this, this is not some form of cosmic child abuse where God the Son forced God or God the Father forced God the Son to do something against his will. No, this was Jesus voluntarily offering himself and joyfully offering himself for our salvation. Like this is the gospel that Jesus did this for the joy that was set before him. He offered himself for our sake. Now, as you're thinking about this, this should raise some questions for you. Like especially if you're familiar with the story of the gospel or if you grew up in church or, or you got friends or family that have tried to share the gospel with you and there's some dots that don't connect for you because you might have some questions like I've had in the past. Questions like this, well, why does sin require death? Why couldn't God just forgive us and move on? Because this whole death thing and sacrifice thing, it sounds so gruesome. It sounds so cruel. How could a God be good and loving and gracious and demand a bloody sacrificial death just to forgive us for our sins? Let me give you an illustration. That may or may not help. And I'm, I'm, I'm admitting, it it's going to sound a little weird at first. I just want to give you a window into how I think. This past week, I was reading a random article about animal violence. I know, just stick with me, okay? I have no idea why the Google algorithm thought this was a story that was relevant to my life. But I read it and I just took it as the Holy Spirit preparing me for this sermon. So here we go. Let me ask you this question. Wherever you are, let me ask you this question. What would you guess is the most violent mammal in the world? You would be wrong. And some of y'all are saying stuff that's not even mammals, okay? Right? L- let me tell you, listen. There was a study published in 2016 that found that meerkats are the most likely mammals to murder their own kind. Some of you are like, what in the world is a meerkat? I have a picture for you, okay? This is a picture of a meerkat, all right? Like, for real. <laughs> that literally is, it's a meerkat. Now, I hate to ruin Lion King for you, but I want you to listen to this. Listen to what one writer said. Unlike humans, meerkats are not encumbered by murder or cannibalism taboos or notions of gender for that matter. In fact, most often it's the females that kill. 
Meerkats maintain a strict hierarchy. The dominant female in a group usually prevents subordinate females from mating. If a subordinate gives birth, listen, meerkats go hard. If a subordinate gives birth, the alpha female will often kill and eat her pups, thereby reserving more resources for her own young. They left that out of the Lion King script that Timon was a serial killer. They left that out. (laughs) They eat this other female's babies just to prevent that female from becoming more dominant. And we look at that and it's appalling to us. And the reason it's appalling to us, listen, the reason it's appalling to us is because as human beings made in the image of God, we have an elevated sense of morality that tells us right from wrong. And listen, morality is not determined by our desires or survival instincts, but by the moral law of God implanted in our conscience and revealed in God's word. So listen, what's normal to a meerkat is detestable to us because we have a greater understanding of the way things should be. Here's my point. Isn't it possible that if there truly is a God who is wholly superior to us, who is unimaginably holy and just and righteous and good and wise, isn't it possible that God has a greater understanding of the way things should be than we do? Isn't it possible then that our sin is much more horrific than we think? Isn't it possible that what might be normal to us in 2022 in our society could be detestable to God? In fact, it's not just possible. That's precisely what God has revealed to us in Scripture. Listen, if I kick a soccer ball, it's okay. If I kick a rock, no problem. But if I kick a child, I go to jail. A child is undeniably more valuable than a rock or a soccer ball. And in the same way, our sin is an infinite offense against an infinitely holy and just God. Our sin separates us from him. And the giver and sustainer of all life is also the judge of the earth. And his judgment against us is physical and eternal death. And listen, this is where you got to lean in if you're exploring Christianity, because the biblical explanation is that sin is so vile and so offensive, so destructive and so deeply embedded into the fallen human nature that no human remedy can ultimately fix it. We're not just guilty of individual sins, even though we are. But humanity itself is enslaved by the demonic power of sin. And we see glimpses of it throughout human history. And when we watch the news, we we feel these symptoms of the horrific nature of sin when we see evil in our world. And so God in his love takes matters into his own hands. And he sets out on a rescue mission, a plan of redemption that would send Jesus into the belly of the beast, into the darkness of death itself. This is what the writer of Hebrews meant in Hebrews 2.14 when he says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, 
And he himself likewise partook of those same things. He took on flesh and blood. That's Christmas. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. Listen, Jesus died to pay the penalty we owe for our sins. And then he rose from the grave to conquer the power of Satan, sin, and death. And that was the ultimate purpose for which he came. This is why Jesus came. He came because he knew that we were helpless in our human condition and we were guilty because of our sin. And he loved us enough to do something about it, to do what we could not do, what we would not do. He made the first move and he sent Jesus to save you and to save me. And for anybody here or listening or watching who turns from sin and trusts in the sacrifice of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, God promises on his own honor that he will save you, that he will forgive your sins, separate your sin as far as the east is from the west, and reconcile you to God and give you purpose in life and eternal life. Now I want to land on this last phrase in verse 8. Before we do that, I want you to see what's really happening in this passage, just as a way of summarizing what we've studied so far. Because I want you to really catch the force of what Paul is saying. We were in a staff meeting together, all, all staff meeting. We were studying this passage, and one of our staff members pointed out this pattern in Philippians chapter 2 that I want to show you. I'm going to pull a David Platt and try to write on the iPad. So we're going to hope, Lord, help me. Give me the technological skill of David Platt. I'm going to try to do this. Okay, can you see it? Okay, good. All right. All right. I want you to, I want you to just not just hear the text, but I want you to see the text. I want you to see what's happening here. It says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So we've studied this together. Jesus here, is this working? Here we go. All right. He's fully God. And yet, listen, he emptied himself. Jesus emptied himself in two ways that we see here in the text that we've studied together. By taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men, he became a human being. And then in his life as a human being, he stoops even lower. And it says in verse 8, in being found in human form, he humbled himself. He didn't just come as a human being, but even in the way that he lived, he lowered himself even more. And he humbled himself among us. And that's the wonder of the incarnation. But here's the thing. It goes even deeper than that. Jesus didn't just stop there. Like as I think about this text, I imagine Jesus taking these steps down. And then he comes to the edge of the cliff. This is Jesus. <laughs> Where he's facing death itself. 
the author and sustainer of life, is facing death. And he feels the tension of that. This is what is going on in the Garden of Gethsemane where he says, if, if it's possible for this cup to pass from me, let it be so. But he says, not my will, but your will be done. And so he doesn't just stop at humbling himself as a human being. He keeps going and he obeys even to the point of death. But here's the force of Paul's argument that Jesus could have died all kinds of ways. He could have just died for our sins through, through natural causes, but he doesn't. He doesn't just obey to the point of death. Paul says, even death on a cross. It seems like that phrase, even death on the cross, is like the exclamation point in Paul's argument that Jesus would die and he died even a death on a cross. This picture of the downward mobility of Jesus. And listen, we're going to come back to, we're going to look at like the exaltation of Jesus next week. We're not going to get there this week. What I want you to see today in verse 8 is that Jesus lowered himself not just to our level, and not just to the penalty that we owe because of our sin and death, but he went even a step lower to be crucified. And here's what you got to understand. Like, we got we to zoom out and, and get in the context of the first century. We're so used to thinking of the cross as a religious symbol. But as Fleming Rutledge wrote, she said, the cross is by a very long way the most irreligious object ever to find its way into the heart of faith. In fact, during the PBS series on Christianity, the narrator said this, listen, the Christianity is the only major religion to have as its central focus the suffering and degradation of its God. The crucifixion, the narrator said, is so familiar to us and so moving that it is hard to realize how unusual it is as an image of God. Jesus didn't just die any kind of death. He willingly chose to die one of the most painful deaths that a human could experience in crucifixion. not just in the flogging that he experienced with this device that was designed with claws to rip flesh from your body down to your bones and would have sent shock through your body. Not just in taking nails, spikes through his wrists and his feet. But the pain of asphyxiation as his lungs would have collapsed, and we could go on and on. But this was an excruciatingly painful death. But it wasn't just a painful death. It was a public and shameful death. That he was exposing himself to open shame on the cross. We get these pictures, these crucifixes of Jesus with this little, like, loincloth on. No, Jesus was stripped naked. He was exposed publicly for everyone to see. And when you study church history, when you study Roman history, crucifixion was, was perfected by the Romans 
specifically to be a tool of degradation. The whole point of it was to say to everybody that this person does not even deserve to be considered human. This is why it was illegal to crucify a Roman citizen. It was reserved for slaves. It was reserved for treasonous traitors. And so Jesus dies this publicly shameful, humiliating, degrading death on the cross. But it wasn't just shameful. Because from a Jewish perspective, this this type of death was a cursed death. Like when Jesus is on the cross, like the Jews can't help but think about Deuteronomy 21. Listen to verse 22 and 23. It says, and if a man, this is their their old covenant scriptures, and if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him on the same day. And here's why. For a hanged man is cursed by God. And so when the Jews are looking at Jesus on the cross, It not only discredited all of his claims, but it was proof positive that he was actually cursed by God. He claimed to be equal with God, but he was cursed by God. That's a blasphemer. And this is why Paul quotes that passage from Deuteronomy in Galatians chapter 3 when he talks about the gospel. He says, Galatians 3.13, that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, he quotes Deuteronomy 21, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Paul says, all right, that part of it you got right. He says, but here's, here's the good news. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. That Jesus took on that curse, not in spite of being God, but because he was God who came in human flesh, who took that curse in our place so that we could receive the blessing that he deserves. And so you ask yourself, so, so why did Jesus, of all the ways that he could have died, why did he die on a cross? Man, I've literally spent all, I have pages of thoughts and reflections and notes just thinking about that. And I think there's several reasons that God chose the cross as the means of Jesus' death. But here's what I think is the main reason. Here's the main reason. I think Jesus was crucified to show the length that he was willing to go and the depth that he was willing to stoop to save even the worst of sinners. That he took on the death of not just a criminal, but the worst kind of criminal that that society could ever imagine. That he took on this degrading, shameful death, this kind of death that a person would experience that would be cut off from human memory. Jesus died in that way so that we could understand the height and the depth and the width and the breadth of his love for us, even those of us who might sit here today or be watching today, and you come to church and you feel uncomfortable because everybody around you looks like they've just been good their whole life and and they could not possibly understand what you've done or what's been done to you or the background that you have or the stuff that you've been into. And you think to yourself, if they only knew, if they only knew the type of stuff that I've done, if they only knew, 
And there's no way they could see me as qualified for the grace of God or, or qualified to actually be a Christian or qualified to serve God in the church. Well, spoiler alert, none of us is qualified for the grace of God. That's why it's grace. That's why it's grace. And Jesus took all of that shame on the cross and all of our guilt on the cross. He did it in that way. Demonstrate to us, not just what he, what he was accomplishing in taking our sin, but to reveal to us the depth of his love for those of us that feel the most unlovable, the most unreachable, the most discardable. And so what should that produce in us? And this is where I want us to land. Like in this Christmas season, as we think about the incarnation of Jesus that led him to the cross, like what should that produce in us? Well, number one, Jesus' death on the cross should produce profound gratitude. Profound gratitude. I was preaching in Los Angeles a couple months ago, and I was visiting my brother-in-law who lives in Pasadena. And we were driving down some main, like, street in Pasadena. And when you look down the side roads, you look down every side road, you just see, like, this, like, these panoramic, like, framed views of these unbelievably majestic mountains. Like, every side street. I'm like, every side street. And, you know, what struck me is that my brother-in-law was unfazed. You know why? Because it had become familiar to him. And I think it's like in this Christmas season, like for, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, what we've been talking about, it can become so familiar to us that we lose the wonder. We lose the wonder. Our hearts don't sense, they don't feel, they don't express the kind of gratitude that we should have if we really, really grasp the depth of God's love for us on the cross. Think about it. On the cross, Jesus took the penalty of our sin so that we could enjoy the privileges of his perfect righteousness. He took the judgment that we deserve so that we could enjoy the blessing that only he deserves. On the cross, Jesus experienced estrangement from God so that we could enjoy intimacy with God. And for the first time in eternal history, he experienced what it feels like to be forsaken by God so that we could know what it feels like to be in fellowship with God. Like our hearts should be bursting with gratitude. Jesus allowed himself to be humiliated in the eyes of people so that we could be honored in the eyes of God. He suffered emotional turmoil and psychological trauma so that we could enjoy the peace that surpasses understanding. He suffered physical abuse and excruciating pain so that by his stripes we could be healed. And when the time was fulfilled... He breathed his last breath and surrendered his body to death so that you and I could enjoy eternal life. This is why he came. Jesus was born in a manger so that one day he would die on a cross. And as we celebrate Christmas, I don't want us to miss the wonder of what he came to accomplish. And he came to accomplish all of that for you.
That is the most breathtaking reality in all of eternity. And it should fill our hearts with an overwhelming and humbling sense of wonder and worship and gratitude toward God. And that should affect the way we live. And that's the last thing I want to point out, that Jesus' death on the cross should produce in us a countercultural life. It makes no sense to truly understand and have experienced all of this and then live just like everybody who doesn't even believe it. We live in a world, this is what I mean by countercultural, we live in a world that says you should never do anything that's beneath you. We live in a world that says cling to your rights and prioritize your preferences by any means necessary. Where your value is determined by your accomplishments and your self-worth is measured by your social status. Like where, where people judge you based on how much you have. And honestly, we judge ourselves by how much more we have than other people. And this explains why so many of us claw and grasp and cling to our positions and our possessions and our preferences. Because if I don't have those, if they're taken away from me, then who am I? That's why the number one question for the people in the D.C. area, you already know what the number one question is when you meet somebody. What do they ask you? What do you do? Translate. Who are you? But Paul says, look at the humility of Jesus. And his primary point here in Philippians 2, it's not primarily theological. His main point is actually very practical. Remember how the passage starts. We read this context in week one of this series. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians 2 verse 3. This is his point. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And what is this mindset of Christ that Paul is talking about? It's what we've been studying together over these past few weeks. It's the mindset that led Jesus to let go of the privileges of his divine status. That led Jesus to humble himself, to lower himself all the way down to the dust and to become our servant. It's the mindset that led Jesus to willingly suffer for our sake. And Paul is saying, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is how you're called to live. And it's not just Paul. This is what Jesus himself taught. Like This is out of Jesus' own mouth. Mark chapter 10, listen. He says, but whoever would be great among you, this is countercultural, must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And in Matthew 16, Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. And here's the imagery, and take up his cross and follow me. Here's the logic of the kingdom of God, that whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is why I say it's a countercultural life. This is what the life in the kingdom of God looks like. The way up is down. The path of greatness is actually found 
in a life of service, in a life of sacrificial love for the good of others and for the glory of God. And listen, you can't fully experience the life of Jesus until you actually embrace the lifestyle of Jesus. And here's what we all know. Grasping and demanding and constantly clamoring for worldly greatness is not a life that's filled with joy and peace. It's a life filled with angst and chronic discontentment. So I think about the witness of so many brothers and sisters in Christ throughout church history, people who have given up everything to go and spread the gospel. In the most dangerous regions of the world, I think about so many women, like specific names coming to mind now through, through Christian biographies who literally sold everything they have to go and to, to start orphanages and to pour their lives out for the sake of the most vulnerable among us. This beautiful picture of this life of humility and sacrificial love. But here's the thing. I think oftentimes when we hear stories like that, it can make us lose sight of the ways that God is calling us to love others sacrificially in our everyday life. I love how one writer put it. He said, we think giving our all to the Lord is like taking a $1,000 bill and laying it on a table. Here's my life, Lord. I'm giving it all. He said, but the reality for most of us is that he sends us to the bank and has us cash in the $1,000 for quarters. We go through life putting out 25 cents here and 50 cents there. Listen to the neighbor kid's trouble instead of saying get lost. Go to a committee meeting. Give up a cup of water to a shaky old man in a nursing home. And he didn't add this, but I'll add this. Get up for the 17th time to give your child another snack. That's just my own personal counseling moment. And then this is what he says. He says, usually giving our life to Christ isn't glorious. It's done in all those little acts of love, 25 cents at a time. Amen. And here's what God put on my heart so Clearly, literally yesterday as I was praying for you in preparation for this message. Not only is God calling us to, to, to receive and to model the sacrificial love of Jesus, but I think he's trying to encourage some of us who are doing it right now. Like God has some of you in a season right now where you're making sacrifices right now for the sake of other people. And it's hard. It's hard. Honestly, it feels a bit like a death, a death to your desires, a death to your upward mobility, a death to what you thought life would be like right now. But you're doing it to honor God and to serve the people that God has put in your life. And I just want you to hear encouragement from God that you have a Savior who identifies with that voluntary suffering for the sake of others. And His Spirit's job description in your life is to make you more like Jesus, meaning that He can give you the strength and the joy that you need to glorify God in the midst of that suffering. Some of you need to hear that. He's with you. Like, who is God calling you to serve in this season of your life? What sacrifices is He calling you to make for the sake of others? What is God calling you to let go of so that you can be more available to people around you? And as we celebrate Christmas, 
let's remember that Jesus gave his life for us and calls us to give our lives for his glory and the good of others. I want to pray for us, and before I do that, I just want to say, if you're here or you're watching this from wherever you are and you have not yet received this gift from Jesus, this gift that we've been talking about, everything he did, like the rumors are true, that God in heaven came to earth, put on human flesh, and he lived the perfect life that you couldn't and died the death that you and I deserve. And he rose from the grave so that he can offer you eternal life and abundant life. And I just want to invite you, while I'm praying, before you leave today, before you put your head on your pillow tonight, I'm, I've been praying for you and I'm just begging you to turn from your sin and turn to your own inventions of religion and put your trust in what Jesus has done for you. And for those of us who have, man, I'm praying that we'll accept God's invitation to live in the wonder of that and to spread that wonder to others as we serve them. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your word. It, your word is it's incredible. I, I don't even have words to describe, Lord. Just the depth of wisdom and the glory, Father, that the treasure that we find in your word. And thank you for what it reveals to us about life and about the world and about you and about how we can enjoy a relationship with you, God. Thank you for the wonder of the incarnation and the crucifixion that is the basis of our salvation. And God, I pray for everybody watching and listening who is not yet a follower of Jesus, God, would today be the day that you open their hearts like you did me. Lord, please, God, I pray that out of their sincere faith that they would cling to the sacrifice of Jesus for new life. And God, would you make us more like Jesus as we pour ourselves out for your glory and the good of others. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.